Well, hey everybody, this is Jean Nathan and this is Crosstown Conversations uh, on this Friday. And after listening to the uh, list of uh, places to go eat at the fish fries, man am I hungry. But um, we, we're going to deal with some serious stuff at the top of the show because I am just slightly obsessed, not panicked, but very focused on this coronavirus thing. And um, I don't know about you, but uh, I'm not trusting a lot of the information that I'm hearing. So I I really made a point all this week to find people who knew what they're talking about. And I've got two of them, one from the uh, State Department of Health, Dr. Joe Cantor, who's on the line right now with us, and then following him, Dr. Mushat from uh, Tulane's uh, uh, School of Medicine, and uh, he is the chief of infectious diseases. So these are guys who know what they're talking about, so we can we can kind of trust what they're saying. Um, so, Dr. Cantor, are you there? I am. Thank you, Jan. It's good to be with you. Good to be with the WBOK family. Thank you so much for making the time to talk with us. I know you probably have a lot of people calling you and you're having to talk to a lot of us and say some of the same things over and over again. But um, I am very appreciative to have you on the show because here's why I am so emotionally involved in this. Um, My husband is 82 years old. He is a wonderful guy. And you wouldn't know that he's that old because he just keeps rolling along. And he has MS. So... There you go. Senior with an underlying illness. That is the profile of somebody who is vulnerable in this disease. Plus, he's a boy. So, you know, he doesn't wash his hands all the time and he doesn't worry about his health. So I am doing all of that for him. And, um, you know, the supplies are running out already all over town. And and, um, I'm trying to sort of parse this all out and figure out. Uh, what what really is going on. Of course, everybody is saying, oh, we don't have any cases here. And my reaction to that was, really? How do we know? We're not testing. That's my first question. How do we know what cases we have in this state if we are not testing? It's a great question, Jenny, and, and thanks for bringing that up. And, you know, certainly I think we would all rather be talking about fish fries right now. It sounds like a more pleasant topic. Really? Um, we do not at the moment have any confirmed cases in Louisiana, and we have been testing. Um, so our state lab, which is in Baton Rouge, got the capacity to test last Friday. Even before that time, if we had had a patient that met criteria, they would have been tested. It just would have been sent to the CDC in Atlanta. Now we can do those tests in state. And we typically get these results back same day. Um, The testing is a little bit restrictive because uh, we've been following the CDC's criteria. I thought they had loosened those up, those criteria. Right. They loosened it up about a day ago. um, But then they actually, um, Vice President walked it back a little bit. And the challenge has been the supply of tests nationwide is so restrictive at the moment. So the criteria of who gets tested follows that and is restrictive as well. You know, we expect that to loosen up over the next week as more tests become available and also as commercial laboratories start doing this test. But at the moment, it's just the state lab in Baton Rouge that's performing it. 
Yeah, see, this is what really worries me. So you, you, if you're tracking this thing at all, and you, you don't have to work hard at it because it's on every news show, it's on every news uh, print um, out there, it's in the social media, um, it's moving fast. It moves fast. Once somebody who's infected is in a community, watch out because just about every person that individual comes in touch with is uh, the, I don't know what the like what the percentages are. Let's say uh, a patient has um, a coronavirus, and and uh, they figure that out over the course of several days because they're not going to know initially because the symptoms don't come on right away. And they have interacted, let's say, with 25, 30 people, 50 people. Um, how do we know what what is the probability of the percentage of the people that someone who is infected comes in touch with is going to come down with the virus? That's that's another question. Sure. Another great question. You know, and I'll, I'll caveat it to me with we're still learning a lot about this virus every day because it's so new. Although the family of coronaviruses is not The family of coronaviruses have been around for a while. Right. In fact, coronaviruses is one type of the causes of the common cold. And I would venture to bet that almost every one of your listeners have had a coronavirus in their life. Certainly if they have young kids at home, they definitely have. Um, that said, this strand is new, and we're learning a lot about it. Um, experts at the CDC estimate right now that it has an infectivity rate of somewhere between two or three. So on average, uh, if one individual is infected, they would be expected to spread that to two or three other individuals. Um, again, we're learning really? a lot about That's this all? day by day, and these things change. Yeah, I, 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 there was that one case where, let's see, somewhere in Westchester, I think, in New York, this one person had been in contact with, I, I don't know how many people, but I think that they have 30 people in quarantine right now that um, he has some contact with. So, I, I don't know, a couple people sounds pretty low, but even if it is just a couple people, then those couple people are in touch with another couple people, and that's how this thing is spreading. The, the, the um, explosion of the virus in Italy is the one that uh, can kind of grip you, that uh, they, sh- they probably were totally asleep at the wheel. They had no clue that was coming on and uh, probably had no uh, preparations. And that's, that's my next question. So, um, you know, essentially you hear a lot of people say, hey, we knew this was coming. This is something that is um, fairly predictable, that these are go- going to happen. <clears throat> and so it's really critical for states and cities and, and, the, and countries to be prepared. And I, I don't think anybody would say that this country or any of us, our cities or states were prepared. But to some extent, and um, fill me in on how the state was prepared. Absolutely. And you know, just like you insinuate, we're assuming that we will get some cases in Louisiana. You know, we're preparing um, for a, a when scenario, not necessarily an if scenario. Luckily, you know, the preparations that come into play for a virus like this are similar to what we plan for every year for a pandemic flu. It's a respiratory virus. It spreads very similar to how the flu spreads. And a lot of the mitigation efforts are similar as well. Every year at the onset of flu season, we plan for 
what would we do as a community, as a state, if this was a really, really bad flu season, a pandemic like H1N1? And we look at uh, what would be the triggers for canceling schools, closing conventions, how do you get vaccine out when that becomes available, how do you ramp up capacity in hospitals, those sorts of things. So those plans are, are really applicable, and that's what we're basing it on. You mentioned contact tracing, um, and that becomes a really key part. So it might be helpful for me to explain what would happen once we get uh, the first case, the first confirmed case okay. in Louisiana. All right. Um, you know, once we get the first case, immediately a team of epidemiologists from the state health department um, and also from the city likely would spring into action. They would interview the individual that was diagnosed positive, figure out where they've been um, going back in time, reaching those contacts, and if, it, if they need to be quarantined, they'll be quarantined as well. And this is a process that happens all the time, just doesn't really get highlighted or reported on. For example, we do this um, quite regularly for tuberculosis patients. We've done it in, in the past when we had small um, measles cases here and there. We had one a couple of years ago. So the process is not new, and the teams that do this you know, train all the time and, and are quite savvy in it. And you gave the example of um, a case uh, elsewhere where 30 people were in quarantine, for example. Just because someone's in quarantine doesn't mean that they're going to develop the right. disease. You typically right. quarantine anyone yeah. that had contact, and then a smaller proportion of those people might might develop the the, vaccine, the the disease itself. So that's what would happen. One of the important things is you know, this governor has committed to being immediately transparent once we have our first case. So once we do have that first case test positive, you should expect to see a public announcement. You know very very quickly certainly same day you know if not same hour so you won't be you won't be out there saying oh this is nothing this is going to go away and miraculously in the spring it's going to disappear and don't worry we're going to have a you know a vaccine in a couple of months i mean i i, I don't know what to say yeah, anymore I, about absolutely absolutely not and yeah and i appreciate the question you know it is a fine balance Jimmy, because we don't want people to panic, and we don't want folks to overact. Um, because at, at the moment, I don't think that's justified. But on the other hand, in the state health department, in the local health department, we are taking this extremely seriously and really engaging all precautions. And every resource will be brought to bear if and when we have that first case. So I was probably one of the first people, maybe in the United States, to wear a mask on a flight two weekends ago when I went up to Bentonville for the opening of an art um, facility called The Momentary, which was a big deal, and I was excited to go. But I'm thinking, hmm, it's the headquarters for Walmart, so it gets vendors from all, all over the world, and you can be sure from China, and it co goes through Houston. I'm wearing a mask, and I wore a mask. Now, then... I find out later things that I didn't know, such as, okay, those little masks that I had, the little surgery kind of mask, um, was inadequate. I did try to keep all the edges of it closed, so therefore I had my hands all over it all the time. And then when I was off the plane, I would take it off immediately and uh, stuff it in my bag. And apparently, if you're touching the surface of it, you are theoretically exposing yourself to exactly what 
you had it on for in the first place. And I'm saying, oh my, I sure didn't think of that. So it's it's so hard to parcel this out. And that's why I think people are also kind of not panicky, but just so uncertain about what really works and what doesn't work. And now they're saying, of course, we can't get those masks. The What is it called? The N95 masks. Those are the ones that really do work. And um, of course, I went to a couple of drugstores looking for a Purell and they were all out. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's so hard to sort of balance what you think, what you superficially hear is the thing to do, and then the permutations, like, you know, not touching the outside of a mask, for example. I, I guess I should have thought of that, but I sure didn't. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. Um, and there's also a lot of misinformation on social media floating around right now. Um, but let's talk about masks. Um, <laughs> I mean, two weeks ago, maybe it was a Mardi Gras costume. I'll just throw that idea out there. Yeah, no. but, <laughs> um, you know, outside of a setting like Wuhan City, China, uh, and, and even there it's debatable, but, but outside of that type of setting, for almost everyone in the public at this point in time, there is absolutely no utility to wearing these masks out in public, really for the reasons that you just brought up. Number one, these surgical masks are not even designed for that purpose. The point of these surgical masks are to prevent the person who's wearing it from coughing on other people, coughing into an open operating field, for example. So it's best to prevent the source individual from exposing other ones. It doesn't really do a lot to prevent to block what that person who's wearing it breathes in. For that, you need this N95 respirator, which is, um, you know, something that a lot of hospitals are trying to stock up on right now. But even beyond that, you can't just put the mask on for an hour and take it off and feel like you have protection. There's a whole process that healthcare providers go to. It's called donning and doffing, taking on and taking off this type of protective equipment. People get trained to do it. It's easy to do it wrong if you're not trained on it, and you have to wear it all the time for it to offer any type of protection at all. So when you see people wearing masks out in the public, it's likely not doing anything to protect that individual from the public. Now, for someone who is symptomatic, so let's say you had a bad cough, yeah, I know. It's protecting other people. Fly, yeah. It would protect other people. Right. Yeah. So, Joe, uh, Dr. Cantor, um, we're going to run out of time pretty soon. So let me ask you, because I, well, I've tried to uh, I focus on the things that have me unnerved. But um, if, if you were to, to say that the top priority things that we should be thinking about um, going forward as citizens, um, Please tell me. I mean, I know hand washing. I've heard about that. We all have gotten the drill on that uh, for 20, count to 20. And, um, and um, you know, staying uh, six feet away from people who might uh, be sneezing and coughing. Um, after that, uh, I'm lost. What's next? What else? What are also the key things that we should be keeping in mind? It's the same key things that we should be keeping in mind every year during flu season. Cough etiquette, which means covering your mouth when you cough. Hand hygiene, which means washing your hands multiple, multiple times a day, uh, using hand sanitizer when you're out and about away from a sink, but running water and soap is always best. Um, Not going out of the house if you're sick. If folks are sick to the point that they need to be at a hospital, by all means, go to a hospital. But if you're not that sick, don't go to work, 
Don't go hang out with friends. Don't go, you know, to your grandma's or your mom's house. It's not worth exposing other people to what you have. Those are the key things that people can do, and also avoiding touching their hands to their face and eyes and mouth, which actually is much more difficult to do than people realize. The other thing I'll mention is we're still in the middle of flu season, so there's still time and good reason to get the flu vaccine if anybody hasn't done that yet. People forget how dangerous the regular flu is. I'll give you an example. Last flu season, last year, which wasn't even a particularly bad season comparatively, it was an average season for us across the state of Louisiana, we had 15,000 hospitalizations and over 1,500, 1,500 deaths. So to put it in perspective, there's a lot more risk there. Wow. than there is with the coronavirus. So flu shots. And I did get my flu shot. I also got on, uh, uh, I re-upped my pneumonia shot because nobody would tell me that that was a good idea or not. But I just felt like when I checked in to see whether I was due, I was way overdue. So I went ahead and did that just in case because most of the people who are dying from this uh, coronavirus, as is true also for the flu and for colds, are dying because of uh, pneumonia. Am I right? You're absolutely right. And as you mentioned at the beginning of our segment, it's people who are elderly and have underlying medical conditions who are that are really bearing the brunt of this. I'm going to be in touch with you um, again, if you don't mind, uh, Dr. Cantor. I thank you so much. And um, the state for uh, the governor's office is really who got me to you. So I appreciate that they were helpful. And um you know, stay in touch with me, too, uh, 917-232-4522. If you've got a development that you think is important to get out, let me know. We put out a newsletter in addition to the radio show. Thank you so much for call- calling in. Is there any last point you want to make before we go? Everyone stay safe, stay home if you're sick, and uh, keep your eyes out to news releases. But if you haven't heard it from the governor and the health department, it's not true. <laughs> Okay, and I do trust our governor and our health department in Louisiana, unlike those folks up in the White House who, I don't know, they just, uh, that guy just says whatever he wants to say. And we've all learned, I think, by now not to take anything too seriously, because you just just have no clue if there's any relationship between what he says and what's going on. Thank you, Dr. Cantor. We'll Thanks, be, Danny. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon again. And uh, stay on the case for us. Thank you. So um, we are, um, you know, uh, I hope you, you, you understand. And, and uh, it, it was kind of rough to come out of all those great fish fry uh, recipes that are driving me crazy in my mind and in my tummy right now uh, to dealing with this issue. But it is... Um, you know, I know everybody's trying to say is maybe the flu is just as bad, et cetera, et cetera. But um, this one, without a doubt, has caught the attention of a lot of people. So we really have to um, understand it as, as well as we can. Um, I think we now have Dr. David Mushat. Is that how you pronounce your name, sir? Yeah, it's pretty close. It's uh, Mushat, but I'll, I'll Mushat. respond to Mushat. anything. Okay. Um, Associate Professor of Medicine and Section Chief of Infectious Diseases. So that's, um, that's, that's a, a, a very important uh, responsibility that you carry. And, um, and I, I don't know whether you heard um, Dr. Cantor, who was on just before you from the Louisiana Department of Health. He was giving me a perspective from, uh, from 
what they're doing and what their concerns are. Um, but what I'd love to hear from you to start with, and then I, I'm going to let it um, <clears throat> open it up to what you feel are the most important points you can make for us. Um, where, where did this thing come from? And, and why are we so um, scared of it? Well, those are those are great questions, uh, Gene. And um, so the fact of the matter is, we don't know exactly where it came from, but we have a pretty good idea that it can be found in bats, um, and it's quite likely that another animal, perhaps a mammal or other animal that humans have come into contact with. Um, transmitted the virus from bats to humans at some point. Um, but these are, these are um, viruses that, that are zoonotic, that is, they can be found in, found in animals. And, you know, as the world's population grows, uh, as, as there's more crowding, as we get closer to wildlife um, uh, through various practices, whether it's hunting or skinning or eating, well, animals, there's always this potential for uh, these viruses and animals to, to infect humans. And then sometimes if they have a mutation uh, or it's something that changes in their genes and they get it into a human, they, they actually can adapt to humans and they can grow. And so at this point, um, the bottom line is we don't know for sure, um, but um, we think that the bats may have been the original uh, reservoir. Bats. Okay, so um, now when you hear about these viruses that are transmitted from animals to humans, most of the time we're hearing about these uh, markets in China where uh, certain wild animals are considered to be um, to have some kind of um, health values, kind of uh, not unlike some of the crazy spices that we eat, thinking, oh, this is going to be good for this or that. Um, so why is it, you mentioned just, you know, being in contact with wild animals that we hunt in this country. Have we ever traced um, one of these coronaviruses to um, any kind of exposure to just, you know, hunting for, I don't know, deer or, or um, um, other animals here in this country? I, I've only heard about it in connection with these wild animal markets in China. Correct. So in this country, um, we have not seen this with, with this particular virus or, or similar viruses, but we have, we have seen it with other viruses and other uh, pathogens. Uh, people can get various things from, from wild animals, and so that's why when, as, as infectious disease specialists, when we see a patient that comes in with a mysterious infectious disease, we, we ask them, do you, do you hunt? Do you skin uh, animals? Do you um, uh, fish? Uh, have you had a, you know, an animal bite? Um, animals have been known for a long time to transmit things to humans. I think that what's different is that in certain countries, um, like in the U.S., they have these wet markets where they, a lot of different species are crowded together, often in very small, tight quarters. So, for instance, you might have an area where you've got um, not only, um, you know, ducks and, and geese, but you may have uh, mammals and co uh, snakes and all sorts of critters uh, crammed into pretty tight quarters. Um, they're usually alive. Some of them may be um, dead and hanging on, on a hook. Um, ready for somebody to buy and use for whether it's uh, food consumption or for traditional medicine, um, and you know it's probably not a very good idea. I mean, I you know I know we have to be culturally sensitive and we have to think about other cultures and their practices, but again, you know the way I look at it is the more we encroach on 
human, wildlife, and their habitats, the more pro- problems we get into. And obviously, it's not fair to wildlife for us to encroach in their habitat, but it's also poses a risk for us. And so I think the, the world has to think through carefully how we, we do these things in the future. So... Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and and go down a different path. So uh, the other big question I have, and I've already dealt a little bit with um, Dr. Cantor on um, issues of screening, which, you know, I I felt like we were extremely slow in in getting ourselves up to speed with screening, and I still don't really understand. I I don't think we're doing any kind of uh, screening that we need to be doing. And so when we say that we don't have any cases, I'm saying, really? How do we know? No screening going on. So how do we Course. <laughs> but um, yeah. well, the, the other thing that I think each of us who has a, a little cough or sniffle um, wants to understand is, um, at, you know, I, it seems to me like if, if let's just say you have coronavirus, okay, and that's the cause of, of your sniffles. You're not just got some cold that you got from your kid from school, um, but that um, you actually have it. Um, and initially, it comes on. It may come on slow. It may not seem very serious, and and you're just having some kind of little dry cough, and then, you know, maybe your nose is stuffed up. But at, at, at it seems like by the time it gets real serious, and you get in the hospital, you are in real trouble. So I'm trying to figure out where is that point at which. Um, you need to really uh, not panic and not fill the hospitals if you're, if, if with people who uh, don't really have anything serious. But how do you know? How do you know when is the time you should be walking yourself into an emergency room? Well, so that's a great question. And um, I think the point to be made here is that if you're not feeling super sick, i.e., let's say you have a fever and a cough and you think you might have it, but you're not short of breath, you're not uh, passing out, you're, you're keeping fluids and, and whatnot down. Um, even if you have it, there's really nothing that we would do for you if you came to the hospital. There's, there's no need for any treatment. And, and there, at, at this point, we don't have any known antivirals that, that work against this. So you're really better off lying low at home, you know, taking a nap, eating uh, as best you can, um, you know, lying low, having some chicken soup, whatever. The good news is it looks like probably at least 80, 85 percent of people and probably more who get this don't get very ill. You know, we, we talk about the surveillance pyramid, which is that triangle. And if you think of it this way, when you, you know, with the flu, you know, the, the vast majority of the people are at the base of that pyramid or triangle. Most of them are, are you know, a little sick, uh, not sick at all. And then as you move up, to the narrower part, you get the uh, the people that are very sick, and then the people that actually die, and that's a much smaller percentage for the flu. It's probably 0.1 percent or less of people that get the flu. For this, it maybe it's probably a little bit higher. But again, the vast majority of people are not going to get deathly ill. They're not going to need to be in the hospital. Uh, how do you know that? You know, it's sort of like. It's the same question that one a parent might ask, when do I know to bring my kid into the hospital? There's no absolute threshold or cut point. you got to use your judgment. But, you know, if you're sitting there and you're feeling a little sick but you're not 
super sick, you probably don't need to go in. If you're starting to get woozy, you know, hard, it's hard for you to, to walk, you can't keep fluids down, you're um, starting to get a shorter breath, That's those are warning signs. And then you probably, the first thing you want to do is you want to call your doctor or your clinic. Don't just show up because we don't want people walking in the front door or have this. We want to be prepared to receive them, to put a mask on them, to put them in a private room. Um, so please, um, you know, call first. Um, the state public health department is extremely helpful. They have a hotline that um, providers can call to get some guidance as to whether the person should be tested and in what setting. Um, so there's a lot of good systems in place. It's true that we're not doing as much screening as perhaps we would like. Um, on the other hand, you know, we need to make sure that if we're going to do a lot more screening, that we we roll it out in a manner that's safe for the healthcare workers, and it's, that it's not just done willy-nilly at every clinic the way we might do a flu test, because um, healthcare workers need to take precautions, and they need to also be able to protect the other patients in the clinic um, from persons who might be carrying the virus. So that's that's easier said than done. You the know, bottom line is, <clears throat> yes, there probably are more cases than we're aware of out there, um, and there will be more testing available in the coming weeks. In the coming weeks. I'm going to remember that phrase because that doesn't make me feel too comfortable, truthfully. But um, I appreciate Now, I'll tell you, I had an interesting experience. My husband once had a really bad respiratory thing going on. And so um, we went to the emergency room. And next thing you know, we were in this lovely room that was a private room. And I thought that we were in there because um, the doctor who uh, referred us uh, was familiar with the staff there and he kind of took care of us. And it didn't dawn on me until all of this was happening. Oh, we were quarantined. We were we were brought yes. in there because they didn't know what we had, and that wasn't a time of any kind of big virus scare. But um, they were taking that precaution, I guess, of not knowing why he was as sick as he was, and um, and we were in this lovely corner room uh, with just us. And um, it, it's clear that uh, they were um, being, um, you know, really trying to anticipate any problems and being uh, as cautious as they should be. Um, let me just, um, uh, we have just a few more minutes uh, to go, and I, I would love to hear more from what's on your mind. Um, what do you think uh, is really important that we need to understand better that I have not really um, uh, reached yeah. with my well, questions I, I think so that far? what we're really uh, striving for is to learn more about the natural history of this and. Infection, um, and get a better handle on, you know, how many people, what percentage of people with the infection actually get sick or super sick as opposed to just mildly ill. That's still yet to be uh, worked out. The mortality rate is still not entirely clear. We have a rough idea, but it's probably not very accurate. Um, and, um, you know, and the, the other big issue, of course, is that this is flu season and there's plenty of influenza, particularly influenza A circulating. That's something that we do have a treatment for. There is a vaccine. Um, and so, you know, probably today, if somebody comes in with flu-like symptoms, it's much more likely that they actually have the flu than that they have the coronavirus. And so bottom line is we should all be careful this time of the year. And, and simple measures are sometimes the most effective. So frequent hand washing with soap and water for 20 seconds at a time. Um, you can use hand sanitizer. That's fine, too. Um, you know, Try to limit how many times you touch your nose, your eyes, your mouth. I know it's hard. We all do it subconsciously. Um, you know, maybe a little bit of social distancing. So if you're out in a big crowd, maybe try to keep three feet away from people who are coughing or who are ill. Um, these are all fairly simple measures that we can all 
follow that will go a long way, I think, towards um, stemming um, um, the spread. Um, other things like getting a good night's rest, not drinking too much alcohol, eating healthy. These are, you know, they're they're they're. There are things that you can do to improve your immune uh, function to try to help and, and, and uh, fight what, off this. But a lot yeah. of it really is kind of common sense. And, and what is that? Uh, and I can never remember. Um, it's feed a cold and starve a virus or vice versa. Or is that just a myth? Wait, say that again? Well, you know, they, they talk about feed a... Uh, feed a cold and starve a virus, or is it reverse? That's an expression I've often heard. Yeah, I, I've heard that too, and... and uh, I, you know, don't pay much attention to that, okay. but I think that uh, obviously when you're sick, you know, nutrition is of course important. Um, if you want to take vitamins, if you want to take vitamin C, I don't have a problem with it. They're not proven to be beneficial, they, but as long as they're, they're safe, it's probably okay. You know, there is this thing called the placebo effect, which, you know, yeah. up to 40% of the time, if you take something you really believe in, you actually will feel better. And you know what? I don't care how it works. If even if it's just a mental, um, you know, benefit, um, that that's probably not a bad thing. You know, talk about the placebo effect. Um, um, I, I I am what I, my friends call me, Doctor Gene, because I, I, I do um, offer advice that probably I shouldn't be offering. But I'm, I'm <laughs> a, a big practitioner of um, energy C when you first get a cold and you know stuff like that. So when someone sure. tells me they're not feeling well, I say, Have you had some energy C? Especially my husband. I'm always trying to get him to take it. And then. Um, I'm a little bit of a believer in the saline spray in the nose thing. And I I don't know what the research is showing on this. I'm probably dead wrong, but I have a theory about it. And my theory is that it does help in some way to protect you from infections. Am I totally off base? You know, um, you know, I have no idea. Um, I, I suspect that it's probably there isn't much research on it because it's not something that pharmaceutical companies are going to make any money off of. Um, but I, I'm a big fan of you, uh, telling patients to use uh, inexpensive, over-the-counter nasal saline sprays. Um, it's a great way to decongest your nose and your sinuses. It's generally pretty safe. Um, you, one, one caveat, if people are going to use neti pots and things like that where they're actually infusing um, water Water up into their nose and their inner sinuses, they absolutely must not use tap water because tap water sometimes contains these amoebae, these little critters or parasites oh. that can get up through your sinuses okay. into your brain. So, so glad we said that. I'm so glad you a, said that. A generic or a, uh, a saline, it's safe and, and it certainly gives people symptomatic relief. Okay. Well, that wonderful music in the background is my engineer's way of telling me it's break time. So uh. thank you so, so much, uh, Dr. Mushat at uh, Tulane. He's the section chief of infectious diseases. And you know what? You're probably going to hear from me again in the future. Um, or you call me and let me know something that is important you want to get out to uh, folks. And I'll be happy to help that happen. So we're going to take us a little Lying break. To help. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. WBOK, a proud broadcast partner of the New Orleans Pelicans. WBOK, 1230 AM, what New Orleans is talking about. To some people, the sound of a baby babbling doesn't mean much. But that's not necessarily true. By six months, they're combining vowels and consonants. 
By nine months, they're trying out different kinds of sounds. And by 12 months, their babbling is beginning to take on some meaning. Especially if there's no babbling at all. Little to no babbling by 12 months or later is just one of the possible signs of autism in children. Early screening and intervention can make a lifetime of difference and unlock a world of possibilities. Take the first step at AutismSpeaks.org. A public service announcement brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. Connecting our community for over 70 years. Over 70 years. WBOK, 1230 a.m. everybody so we have been dealing with the tough stuff um but uh i i I can't let a show go by without uh, dealing with some of the absolutely fabulous cultural things happening in our city and uh, i have with me today one of my absolutely most favorite artists in the city of new orleans and his mate who is also a sensational artist and so we're going to be talking with keith duncan and amy bryant and they have a show opening up shortly called conversations and it's at a uh, location right on st claude avenue and and I am so happy to see this because I think we needed some diversity on St. Claude Avenue, where we've had a little bit of gentrification going on. So this is a good thing. That, I agree. <laughs> right? Yeah. It was, that, was that part of the thinking? Um, so this is Keith and Amy. Keith, was that part of the thinking in, in what you all are doing? Well, uh, thank you for having us on today. Amy could speak on that about what this show really was about and why and what it came you know to How it came about. fruition yes um she was really the one that came up with the title so she she couldn't really probably speak a little bit on that all right um amy yeah. hi yes thank you for having us um we decided to we decided to start doing exhibits um, uh, we thought about how I like to exhibit with my sister, Alma, Bra- well, Alma Powell, and Keith likes to exhibit with his brother, Carl. And then one day Keith came home and said, hey, I, I know some other people that we can exhibit with. Uh, so we kind of, we got together and we decided to put on a group show. The first one was Dialogue, and we had it at um, the Jazz and Heritage Building. I and remember that show. Yeah, that yes, was a great yes, show. it was very good. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, we did that because we just thought it was, it was like a dialogue, us coming together and having a conversation through our art. And now we, we're saying conversations. It's the same thing. Um, and it is about us. Um, you know, always uh, wanting to show our art and wanting to uh, our friends and family to show their art and and bring um, some new voices yes uh, um, to the fore and and a exactly. lot of people I don't think uh, really uh, appreciate and understand the extent to which artists are trying to oh dear I'm not doing so well with my um, camera <laughs> here if somebody can help me with this that would be oh, great. <laughs> Well, to elaborate on what Aunt Amy was talking about, yep. the idea of having artists that um, that's unrecognized um, 
underexposed. You know, they don't, they didn't have a lot of exposure when it comes to exhibiting their artwork. Um, like she said, my her sister, my brother, they're also artists in their own right, but they don't have a lot of um, venues. They don't show at a lot of venues, so. We thought it would be good to uh, include them into the exhibit, as well as um, these two artists that I, you know, found recently um, became friends with. One name is Derek Hammond, and um, I worked with him at Tulane um, University and found out that he was an artist. You know, he does paintings. And then there was another artist named Damian Johnson who had never exhibited before. And he is sort of like a family member, but he's um, he's an artist that me and my brother Carl um, discovered. Like we saw his work, and and in and in an apartment where he wasn't showing it anywhere. And I said, "Hey, this guy's work is uh, valid. It's very nice. So we need to um, recognize that." And you know, so we approached him and said, "Would you like to, you know, show your work?" And he said, "Yes." And that's how. That's how the whole concept and idea came about this, that we wanted to show artists that never had, you know, showcased their work before or have, you know, never gotten that recognition or that that type of exposure. And I think that I want to point out to folks um, the extent to which your work um, really tries to develop a narrative about our community, our people, our way of uh, living, and um, the works that I I showed with you at the Myrtle Banks really sort of put that tourism uh, (laughs) narrative in context with realities. So tell uh, tell the audience a little bit more about that. Well, you know, I've always, you know, I think I've always uh, painted about my environment. You know, like when I lived in New York, the work was really charged about, um, it was really geared towards the community I was living in. I lived in Harlem. I lived in the Bronx. And then, you know, but I'm originally from New Orleans. And moving back to New Orleans in 2008, I, of course, started to paint about the culture, especially the Southern culture that we have in, in New Orleans. You know, the music. The, the food, the, uh, you know, the landscape is very unique. You know, the most European city in, New, in America, you know. Yeah. And I wanted to um, bring that out. But at, at the same time, I'm always socially and politically charged in my work. And I wanted to include the other side of New Orleans, the side that people don't see. You know, they always think about Mardi Gras and the tourist industry which is all great, but there is a reality that New Orleans has, just like any major city, you know, with crime and, it's a and little, crime and whatnot. I would have to say it's even a little more true of New Orleans because the image of uh, our the fun-loving side of us is so strong yes. and, and so pervasive that exactly. um, people really don't think about the other side. Yes. And we have a very high level of poverty here right. because most of the jobs that we have are... Uh, on the lower end of the pay scale for one exactly. reason, and I think there's a whole com- 
multiplicity of issues that have to do with why well, we have so much poverty. One of them being that our schools are not really preparing our youth for the new economy. This exactly. is something that I, I, I can't not mention uh, in a show. Amy, I know less Absolutely. about your work, so I, I kind of need <laughs> you to give me a little bit of a, um, ex explanation. I'm so bad at handling this camera, guys. For those of you who are watching, <laughs> Um, forgive me for not being too good about it. Uh, can we see you? Yes. Excellent. Go ahead. Hi. So tell me about your work. A lot of my art is intuitive, and I do a lot of portraits and drawings. Um, and so <laughs> a lot of times the figures, they just come from my, my head, and they tend to look like, well, People who may, so people say they look like people who are related to me. And sometimes I have uh, surreal aspects to my um, drawings. Uh huh. And, and um, how, did, how did you get started? And also, you're teaching, you're teaching art. Yes, I'm teaching art. I've taught all levels of uh, art from college to elementary and high school. And right now, I'm back at teaching college as an adjunct instructor at Delgado Community College. And a lot of people don't realize how strong the art program at Delgado is. Yes. But it's yes. very strong. Very they've, strong. they've made a exactly. commitment um, that a lot of other educational institutions uh, have not. And um, a lot of kids come through your program, and, and that makes a big difference in their lives. Yes. And um, it's very, it's nice being a, the reason I became an artist and educator was because I was really inspired by my teachers that I had in school and I didn't I saw the two as being connected and one of my teachers was um, Clifton Webb oh right of course yes, yes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I've, I've known Clifton forever, ever since. Well, Clifton was part, this is something a lot of people don't know, but Clifton, who's a very fine artist and does a lot of uh, totemic-like art or, or totem uh, work. He's a sculptor as well as a painter. And um, uh, he was one of the founding team uh, for the Contemporary Art Center. Oh, Clifton yes. and oh. Joe Webb, his wife, Joe they Webb, both yes. were very, very active with us when we were first forming the CAC. Oh, so, um, yeah, he's a mentor. Yes, he's a, he is a real mentor. I saw how he did both. So I kind of thought that they went together. Then my mother's also, um, she's a retired, she's a college, she was a college professor oh. of English. So I, always, I just kind of, I always wanted to teach and do art. Um, and I like, I found out I like curating too. When I was, um, well, originally when I taught at Tuskegee University, that was when I started, but then I continued when I taught at Dillard. Uh, and I was um, the gallery director. And so yes. when, when we started doing this, I said, oh, this is just. I love this. <laughs> yeah, something familiar. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's it's also it's it's, it's so uh, I, what you were saying, Keith, about the artists that you um, uh, were able to bring together to uh, to show right. um, that had not had the oh. opportunity. I'm That's just okay. so bad at That's this. Okay. okay, hold on a minute. Let me get this thing back up. Well, the artists that I figure, you know, in New Orleans. There are so many types of artists we have here. We have artists that are commercial, you know, successful artists, um, artists you would see on Julia Street, artists on Royal Street, uh, commercial-based artists, artists that are only deals with um, um, festivals, uh, you know, street fairs, 
street artists. There's all different levels of artists in this city. And, That's a good um, point, yeah. You know, and I, lots I have of opportunities to, for all of them at those, exactly. at those different levels. Especially yeah. after um, Katrina. There's the, the art... The art scene in New Orleans has definitely flourished. You know, we have the Joan Mitchell um, Foundation here. We have Prospect New Orleans, which is a biennial, or I, I should say a triennial, which is um, happening this this year. It's coming 2020. up in October. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And, um, and so, and, uh, you're, and you're going to be a, a prospect artist this year? I, I probably would be at one of the satellites, you know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right, good. Um, I, I heard someone say, at least have your work up. When Prospect is around, exactly. because there's a lot of people coming in town. So you definitely want to be um, and, uh, on, on the wall somewhere. And I'll tell you what, <laughs> um, we at the Creative Alliance of New Orleans, yes. uh, Cano, my nonprofit organization, we always do a strong marketing drive to get people to see the satellites and yes, to see the exactly. local artists from, from the first year when we opened Colton, uh, the high yeah. school. Yes. We had like 160 artists and arts organizations in that school, which became had to become a school again. Yeah. But in the meantime, yeah, we make a point of making sure that our local artists get uh, exposure for right, that. Right. But, um, yeah, I think there's just so many more artists in town that people understand. And um, also, we're always trying to help people understand that they can collect art because Definitely. it is affordable, especially when you're dealing with... Um, these um, exactly. uh, artists who are less known. Right. Um, you know, and I, I have to say, you know, this artist named Terrence Sanders, he used to live in New Orleans, and now I think he's in L.A. He was the artist that really which, uh, brought a lot of artists together. You know, I think I met Amy through Terrence Sanders. I met Carl Joe Williams, all of the level artists, most of them, and, and a lot of other artists that I know around town I've met through Terrence Sanders. And he mm-hmm. has started this publication, Art Voices, if you remember that. Sure. And so he was really someone that recognized what we were talking about, uh, artists that was unrecognized, you know, artists that wasn't getting any, any exposure. And I guess that's what this idea of us doing this show currently sort of derived from, you know, that we wanted to continue showing artists that, that, that you know, doesn't get that kind of, that, that light. So, um, and don't fail to mention, please, <laughs> the Myrtle Banks and, and Crevasse 22, because we yeah, do the same that's thing you, yeah, at those facilities exactly. where we try to make sure that artists that have not gotten a lot of exposure do get some, Definitely. like you. Yes, exactly. So, um, so this, this, so I would like to talk, if we can, about maybe the artist that's in the exhibit, um, like um, Carl Duncan, which is my brother. His work is really, it's about regional, it's very regional. Um, you know, we, me, we grew up in Plaquemines Parish, which is 60, 70 miles south of New Orleans. And Carl does, his work, he, he does on masks like uh, handmade mask, um, but there, but he would paint like images of like the schools that was from the region, from from um, Plaquemines Parish, like Beers High School, which is no longer there, um, Boothville High School, um, Port Salford. These are towns that was in Pla- that's in Plaquemines Parishes that no longer exist. These high schools. Also, he paints uh, about the New Orleans Saints. You know, the Pelicans, all of the sports teams, LSU. He may have some masks that deals with Mardi Gras. 
but you know, commercial, but at the at the same time, very, um, I think, very pride oriented. You know, about this this the region and the city that he's from. And as for um, Damian Johnson, who I'd said earlier, his work, who we discovered was just you know bottled up somewhere. So he's when we showed our first, first exhibit over on the Jazz and Heritage Gallery, that was his first exhibit ever. And he he said his work is really about energy, and um, it's very spiritual, I would say. But he includes, like, the black like black light. You know, he would add, like, a black light to his images. So it, it can um, have a kind of effect. A glow, a glow, yes. Yeah. And um, he, he deals with a lot of different materials in his art. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's paintings. Interesting. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and so it, He's lifting what, it up off the canvas. Yes. And his work is uh, it's very interesting. And as for, um, as for um, Derek Hammond... His work, he said, is is very young, very new, very very graphic, you know. For instance, yeah, his work for this, you no, know, um, the Nipsey, he does this one piece that's going to be an exhibit, and it's about the um the slain rapper, um Nipsey Hussle, and um, you know, I like the way he um depicts this um this figure as if he's a, like a saint, because you know he was doing a lot of positive um, um, outreach and activism in his own community, which is on Los Angeles. So, you know, these artists all have a very passion about what they, you know, paint about. And so that's, I think that's what really drew me to, to these artists. Now, Amy could probably speak about the other artists on the show. I wanted to ask Amy, actually, mm-hmm. um, about, and here I go again with this camera, so everybody forgive me if I... Knock it over again because I seem to be good at that. <laughs> I'll get, I'll get, I'll get up my hand. I'll get a handle on it. <laughs> we got you. Yes, half okay. of it. Okay, a little bit this way. Thank uh, you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so um, here's what I want to know from you: the students that you're working with. Yes. What's on their minds? What are they up to? <laughs> well, right now I'm teaching art appreciation, and um, they're just learning about different types of art and seeing what they like. Well, actually, it's called Introduction to the Visual Arts, um, and they're looking at art that they like and just learning about how to talk about art. So they're they're to ground zero, but yeah. I'll bet you some of those kids who go through your program, then they kind of catch on fire, and the next thing you know, they're looking to actually make work. Right? Oh yes, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah, that I love to see that when students evolve like that. Right, and you can have that mentor effect that. Um, uh, you were talking about with uh, Cliff Clifton Webb. Yes, mm-hmm. right. This this show is. Um, let's let's make sure that everybody has the details on this before we check out because yes. we're getting close. Um, so the, there's an opening reception uh, next Saturday, from six to nine p.m. Yes, um, it's in a space called Art Space, thirty one sixteen St. Claude Avenue. What you got is the uh, cross streets there. Oh, I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a, I know. I always ask people that. Yeah. I, that's one of my favorite questions, and people often don't know the answer it to is, it. So. It's not that far from the, uh, the railroad tracks if you're going towards the um, the lower ninth ward on St. Claude. So um, I'm, I'm not sure what the, um, the cross streets are. 
Yeah. All right, but at any rate, it's it's. Uh, <laughs> what, what are you close to? Let's put it that way. Is it like? Are you close to St. Rock or? Um. There's a um U-Haul company right on St. Oh, Saint okay. Claude. Now I know where you, you are. Um, yeah. Not that far from Noka, which is you right. know. Um, so on you're getting close to the tracks, actually, right? Right. right. Okay. Just past the that tracks, makes sense. exactly. Okay. Um, so it's uh, the opening uh, reception is Saturday, March 14th. That's next Saturday. Yes. Um, six to nine p.m. Um, and then the show is open through Saturday, April 11th. Um, uh, when you'll have a closing reception, 6 to 9 p.m. Yes. Um, and then I presume you have another exhibit coming after that? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. sir. Oh, so yeah. we'll, yes, we'll, we'll come talk about that we'll, one we'll, we'll keep it going, yes. Right, absolutely. <laughs> but um, I, I'm excited about what you're, what you're planning to do here, guys. And um, as I say, it's, it was important for uh, this to happen on St. Claude. You want to add something, Anna? Yes, I just want to give... I just want to give a shout out to the other three artists. There's Catherine Goodley, Alma Powell, and Natori Green. And, um, and they like to do work about their identity as women and family. All right, we got them in. Um, listen, thank you. thank you guys for coming in. And thank you. Thank you for what you're doing on St. Claude. I think it's really important to um, bring it home. Thank right? you. We're bringing St. Claude home. Yes. <laughs> this is Gene Nathan. This is Crosstown Conversations. Um, y'all, I'm, I'm just, I mean, I used to, I work with cameras <laughs> a lot, but I just got to get my arms around handling this thing. Um, but um, that's what we're talking about here at WBOK. Gene Nathan, I'll talk with you next week on Crust Time Conversations. Bye-bye. <laughs>